We made it. <laughs> now, in my short 36 years of life, um, I have discovered that the hardest thing in the universe is to align any group of people. You don't have to have kids to know that. You don't have to um, be a leader to know that. Um, you can just look in the world and see that it's the hardest job in the universe. Now, what does it take to align or unite any group of people? It takes agreement. <laughs> it takes communication and a lot of listening. It takes trust and perseverance. It takes follow through, self-sacrifice, patience, hope, and joy. Now, um, two weeks into my marriage, back in 2005, um, we got married in May of 2005. So in June of 2005, me and my wife were taking a trip to go to another wedding. And uh, we were going to Oklahoma. We had quite a journey, a two-day trip for us. And so on the way um, to our trip, uh, I think we were still in Massachusetts, just getting into New York at the time. I asked my wife, a question, right? We've been married for two weeks. And you know what? I love Kalila. As you, many of you know, she's a, she's a gem. She, I, I have outpunted my coverage. Uh, she is awesome, 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 better than I deserve. And two weeks in, I was thinking, you know what? Things are going great. Things are going awesome. And um, so two weeks in, I said, hey, sweetheart, how do you think things are going with us so far? It's been two weeks. Isn't this awesome? Yeah, just like that. Crickets. Crickets. Oh, sweetie, hello, are you there? Yeah, 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 I'm here. Did you, did you hear what I just asked? Uh-huh, yeah. Um, so how do you think things are going? Um, I think they're going okay. And I learned, <laughs> as, as, as we all learn, that it's very hard just to get two people on the same page. And I've seen this not only in my marriage, but in marriages across the world. And thank God she, she gave me the feedback that I needed and told me what I needed to hear. And it, what happened is through that journey, we started to get aligned, started to unite together about some things and started with really agreeing on what things are. And is there anybody in the universe, I'm just going to ask you, is there anybody in the universe, and some of you, you think this is, you think there are people, but is there anybody in the universe, anybody in this world, anybody in this church that you agree with 100% Look at that, right? It's impossible. I've never found somebody who agrees with me 100%. It just doesn't exist, right? Now, think about that, right? It's been that way since the garden. It's been that way since the garden. There's never been any person that has agreed 100% with any other person. And yet, and yet, the audacity, the audacity of God is to say, I'm going to unite all things. I'm going to make it so the universe agrees, right? There's, the world would be at peace, right? In the Hebrew, it's that word shalom, right? There, there's this oneness, there's this harmony, there's this peace that comes. That's the audacity of God. And where do we get that? We get that in Ephesians. 
believe it or not, right? These are Paul's words in Ephesians 1, right? In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. We all want to know what his will is. What is it, Lord? What do you want? According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. And right there you're like, okay, all things. You mean like, okay, people that agree with him, right? Right, yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay, yeah, people that agree with him. He wants to align those people. Uh, keep reading. What's it say, right? Things in heaven and on earth. God's plan is to unite the entire cosmos. Every sphere coming together, every single facet in harmony. Cosmic shalom is what he's after. And not only that, this is exactly what Christ is all about. This is God's purpose to do this in Jesus. This is the end game. It's always been the end game, is to unite all things in Christ. Now, we just tasted a little bit of the difficulty of what that looks like. We just tasted a little bit of that. And what we're going to look at, and what our big idea is this morning, is, is this reality. It is easy to forget the difficulty of Christ's unifying work. It is difficult to forget, I'm sorry, easy to forget the difficulty, it's, it's difficult to say. <laughs> it's easy to forget the difficulty of Christ's unifying work. And there's lots of reasons why it's easy to forget. But I think the biggest reason is that the reality that we live in, the present, doesn't have the shape of this design, it seems to us. Everything's different. We're all different, right? We can't even get, we're, we're the United States of America, and we can't even agree on, like, what the sky color is. Like, like America's so divided right now. It's, it's, think about that, right? We, we are hostile. This is a hostile environment, right? And then you, and then you, that's just America, right? Where we speak the same language for the most part, right? We've got a constitution, bylaws, the whole nine yards, right? We're supposed to be a united state of America, right? What a dream, what a project, right? And already we're just like, we can't even unify our, our household, right? I bet you right now, you, you are wondering if, you're, if your spouse is on the same page with what's going on in two hours. Right? This is why we text during church. We're freaking out. Hey, what's going on? Are we going to the party? We can't even figure that stuff out. So this is just a reminder. This is a reminder that it's easy to forget how difficult Christ's work is. And talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. Talk about a vision, right? This is the vision to unite the world. And this is not pie in the sky. This is not beauty pageant ridiculousness. Right? Of, of a contestant that comes up and is interviewed by the host. And what would, you, what would you want for the world? Or what do you plan to do? I'd like to pursue world peace. And you roll your eyes. Right? Don't you? You roll your eyes at that. And we all do. Because why? It seems impossible. It seems impossible. But what we're going to look at is that Paul wants to remind us of this difficulty and that it's done. 
It's not only difficult, but it's been done. It's not only difficult, but it's been done. And so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting as we look at um, Ephesians, um, I've, I've thought for many years that it, Ephesians, Paul is just, just masterful this way because the first three chapters of Ephesians, there's no commands. It's pretty cool. He's just describing, it's giving you theological realities and truths, right? And then the second half, that's where all the commands come. That's where all what we call the imperatives come from, right? But guess what? In the first three chapters of Ephesians, we have two imperatives. We have two imperatives, and they're right here. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated, right? And it goes on and on and on. So what does he want? He wants us to remember. He wants us to remember. This is the key. I think this is the key to Ephesians. It's remembering because it's so easy to forget. And this is why he keeps saying things over and over and over again. That's why he's got 13 letters at least in the New Testament where he pretty much says the same things over and over and over again. Because it's so easy to forget. And so what does he want to do? Paul wants to remind us of this difficulty, and he's gonna do that by reminding us first who we were. He wants to remind us of who Christ is, and he wants us to remind us of who we are. So we're gonna just take these one by one and track through the text together. First, first thing he wants us to remember is who we were, right? We just read this. We were alienated from God. We were alienated from God. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, Paul's talking to a Gentile audience, a predominantly Gentile audience. Doesn't mean there weren't Jews in their midst. It just means predominantly. So he could categorize them as a group of Gentiles. And he himself, as Mitch will talk next week, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Right? He was, he was a rabbi, a zealous rabbi who wanted to essentially see the church executed and eradicated. And God said, I've got a different plan. Talk about somebody who's about hostility, right? This guy understands the hostility that's in there. Because what had developed over time was hostilities between Jews and Gentiles for various reasons. But it's hard to remember who we were. It's hard to remember us, most predominantly Gentiles. I wouldn't say uncommon than the Ephesian audience, right? Mostly Gentiles with those who are Israelites in our midst. And yet, it's hard. <laughs> um, it's hard to remember who we were in the past when all we see is the present, right? Remember, out of sight, out of mind. And for us as believers in Jesus, it's very hard to look back and go, at one time we were alienated. Now, throughout most of redemptive history, most Gentiles had no access. Most non-Jews had no access to the covenantal life of Israel 
and there was hostility that existed between the two groups. Now, all you got to do is look at your Bible and remember your history and remember some elements of the story. You remember how Egypt enslaved Israel? Remember that? There's a jealousy that the, that the Pharaoh had had, and he, he didn't want their influence to overtake him, or somehow they're going to join rebels, forces against him. He didn't want that. So what did he do? He said, okay, I'm going to, I'll bring peace <laughs> by subjecting them, right? Then, as the story continues, as God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, right? Ancient Israel was delivered by God's hand, miraculously and graciously. And then they were brought into the desert, right? And what did they face in the desert? Hostile forces, right? Remember Balaam, right? Balaam's donkey, right? This whole pro 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 prophecy against Israel. And as they wandered, they had to go through, they'd actually like, have battles and wars. It wasn't easy. And then, that was all preparing them for when they got to the promised land, right? What did they face in the promised land? They, they were charged with the conquest of the promised land. Hi, can you say hostility? Can you say, like, there's not peace? <laughs> and, then, and then later on, we remember, um, as, as some of those uh, uh, battles with the tribes and the Canaanites didn't get uh, settled, we remember even into David's reign of who was battling who, remember? It's the Philistines, right? What do they call the Philistines? Uncircumcised Philistines, right? It's a term of, of, of a derogatory term to kind of notch them down and go, they're not one of us, right? This is what happens. There's hostility. And then, moreover, after David, Solomon came and many other uh, kings came, and then Israel was essentially inhabited and invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians came along. Big empire on the scene in world history, right? In the 700s. BC, and they squashed Israel like a bug, the northern Israel like a bug, took them off into captivity. Right, then as the world goes, the Babylonians came along. And what did they do? Squashed the Assyrians. <clears throat> and then they came into southern Israel and they destroyed the temple and took Israel captive. Can you say hostility? And then, when they, they were um, chartered to come back to the land, right? Remember, Zerubbabel led those 40,000 back, back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. What did they face when they were there? Opposition from those who were not God's people, those who were not Israel. And, and this gets even worse. Uh, for those of us who, um, who, who may not know all of the things that happened after Malachi was written, between the Testaments, there was a huge revolt under um, the Maccabees, the Maccabean family, because Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek emperor, essentially, went into the temple, the rebuilt temple, and he offered swine on it, like he would sacrifice to his own God. And what happened? The Jews revolted, and they actually took over the Temple Mount in that whole area for almost 100 years that there's a Maccabean dynasty that was there. Right? Until Rome came along, and what did Rome do? They squashed any rebellion. And they put their puppet king in place. And King Herod is the one who actually built the temple, but no one saw him as a true Jew. <laughs> he was an Idumean. So that's just the history. That's just the history leading up to Jesus. Can you say hostility? Yes. Can you say this is difficult work? Yes. And what he's saying, what he is saying is that um, Although Abraham was a Gentile, 
And although Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to the nations and blessings to all people groups, God's people became, over time, obstinate to the call to be the light of the world. And what happened is the hostility went both ways. The hostility went towards the Jews and went from the Jews towards the Gentiles, unfortunately. So much so that, um, that the Jewish leaders um, of the time of Jesus around this new built temple that Herod had had, you know what they did? They put a big, huge court outside of where Israel could go called the court of the Gentiles. And they restricted access for even believer, uh, uh, believing Gentiles, restricted access so they couldn't even go to offer their own sacrifices. Not crazy? So apparently the Jewish leaders of the first century, right, these, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they looked at the flesh to think about what defines us. Now, what's interesting is that the law of Moses condemned idolatry. It condemned idolaters. It condemned idolaters. But you know what the law of Moses didn't condemn? Foreigners. Isn't that interesting? It never condemned foreigners. Matter of fact, throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this charge to look out for the strangers among you and the foreigners among you because you once were a stranger. You once were a foreigner. It's actually forged in the identity of God's people. It always has been. And so what happened was the leaders of Israel in the first century were blind to the fact that they themselves were idolaters too. And instead, they looked at being foreign <laughs> as, as something that alienated you, not something, not idolatry is something that alienated you from God. That's astounding. And we fall into that blindness all of the time. So what did Paul want to remind us of? Paul wanted to remind us that our ethnicity, bloodline, or our cultural identity isn't what ultimately defines us. It's not. It's our relationship with God that defines us. And that's good news for us. That's good news. Now. But that wasn't good news to us before we came to Christ. This is bad news. Because we were alienated because of our pursuit of other pleasures. And we live in a world that doesn't agree with Paul's assessment. We live in a world in which we think we can define ourselves. We are the ones who determine our ultimate meaning. No one can come along and tell me who I am. No one can come along and say, you're, you're alienated from God. Who's this guy? I don't even know who he is. And this is the way we operate. Left to ourselves, humans can never agree on who we are. You realize that? We can never even agree on who we are. We all have different definitions of what makes us us. And our alienation from God, our idolatry, and our pursuit of our own defining of ourselves is what ultimately alienates us from each other. Alienation from God leads to alienation with each other. That's what he's getting at. Now, when you believe the gospel, 
You are embracing that you were born into and lived a life that was alienated from God. And repentance is when we lay down the pursuit of defining ourselves and go, you're right. You're right, Lord. I am an idolater. I am a sinner. I am alienated from you. I've been hostile towards you. Can you have mercy on me? Can you change that? I don't have any equipment to change that. Can you help me? I am arrogant. I am self-righteous. I am faithless, ungrateful, and I've been at war with you. (laughs) Now, it is easy to forget who we are, but when we remember who we were, there's a few things that makes it easy for us. There's a few things that makes it easy for us. I'm sorry, this thing's going to fall away out here. Is that good? I'm a lapel guy, not an ear guy, so bear with me. Thank you. But when we remember who we were, that we were alienated from God, it's easy to be humbled. Not to be arrogant, not to think we can define ourselves, but we're humbled. We remember who we were, it's easy to slow down and not judge people so quickly. Because we go, oh, oh, I'm, I'm a problem and I've had problems. I'm not who I am today um, that I was. It's easy to see our desperation and we go, I am sunk because look at who I was. Look at who I was. Who's made me to differ? It's easy to see how flawed we are. It's easy to have gratitude and go, I can't believe what he's done. I deserve judgment and look at what he's done. I've been alienated and I'm the one that's been alienated. And yet, look what he's done to unify us. And not only that, I'd say this, that when we look back at who we were, outside of Jesus and before Jesus, and whether it's in a historical perspective or whether it's your own personal experience, you can actually have empathy with each other. You can have empathy with people who are alienated because you were once alienated. This is the function of remembering who we were. Now, the second thing he wants to remind us of is this, who Christ is. Who Christ is. Christ is the God of peace. The God of peace. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, expressive ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I believe that the reason that we seek to define ourselves and not think that God chiefly defines us, or relationship with God chiefly defines us, is because we are afraid about how God defines us. We're afraid of the consequences of him defining us. Because if he's right, that means that he's gonna judge me. If he's right, that means that I'm sunk. If he's right, that means anything I have, I lose. Now, behind that is that when we choose to define ourselves, we inevitably take the role and position of defining who God is. 
And what happens is that we reverse engineer who God is based upon who we are. And so therefore, we can't handle his label. We can't handle sinner. We can't handle idolater because we think we identify God as a God of wrath and judgment. And therefore, we say to ourselves, I will never surrender to him. I will never give myself over to him. I will never give up. And this is what causes us to forget that God is the only one who defines himself. God is the only one who defines him. And therefore, this is what Paul wants to do. Keep reminding us of who God is in Christ. Reminder, reminder, reminder. And what does he want to do? He wants us to know that Christ is our peace. He is our peace. He is our peace. And every, every part of this from verse 13 to 18 is to try to help us understand what it means for Christ himself to be our peace. And what's fascinating is that Paul describes something that's the opposite of what we would expect. We would think that God brings peace by maybe judging us. Or he brings peace by bringing us under subjection somehow. Maybe he comes to us and he brings us down somehow. Forces us to take a knee. Forces us to surrender somehow. And what we find is that in fact the opposite occurred. He made peace by surrendering himself. We don't know what to do with that. God submitted and surrendered himself. That's how peace happens. It starts with God. And he's the one who makes the move, the gesture of peace. Praise be to him. God offers peace by becoming one of us, perfectly surrendering the way that we should. And yet, he gets judged the way that we all fear. We fear the judgment that Jesus received. And in every stage of his life, death and resurrection, Jesus embodied the unity of God and man. He embodied it. In his incarnation, what did he do? He became one of us. God became one of us. He took on skin. He took on flesh. He decided he's going to give himself over to breathing air with us and to having blood flow through his veins and eating with us, conversing with us, seeing us at a point of view level, and all of the while doing everything in submission and surrender to God and then in submission and surrender to us. The atonement of Jesus subjected God to the eternal alienation that we all deserve. God himself was cast out of the circle, right? There's a tear in the Trinity. And Jesus was separated from his Father, from our Father, on the cross. He was separated. Why? So that he could do something completely different. He could do something completely new. 
rather than it just being, okay, I guess we'll unite people and they'll all have their own markers and identities and stuff like that. Jesus said, we're going to do something altogether different. And what the resurrection did, the resurrection was designed to redefine us. To redefine us. And what he did is he brought us in to the presence of God. Now, God gave the law to define our relationship with him, right? Didn't he? And and when he did that, that frightens us because we start to see how far we are, are away. And what Jesus did was he removed the law by fulfilling it. He fulfilled and surrendered to God all of the conditions and he fulfilled all of the punishments for those who don't surrender. And that is what the peace of God looks like. (laughs) And quite literally, in the law, there was a temple. And God's presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there was separation there because there was a veil inside of the Holy of Holies that separated from the holy place. No one could go in there except the high priest once a year to offer a blood sacrifice. Sprinkling blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. So talk about limited access, right? The law limited access to God because it defined us as alienated. And yet it gave us sprinkles of hope in the shedding of blood to say, I'm gonna fix that one day. I'm gonna fix that. And guess what? I'm going to tear that veil apart. And that's exactly what we sang about. That's exactly what happened when Jesus said it is finished. Is that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. From top to bottom. Which meant God initiated the whole thing. And there's no way you can say anybody else did that. This is beautiful. This is awesome. And so what, Christ, what God did in Christ was to define, redefine our relationship. And he wanted to bring his presence to dwell in us. He wanted to bring us near. And what that means is that we remember that it's actually, there's some things that it makes easy when we remember. What does it make easy? It, it makes this easy when we know who God is. It makes it easy for us to want to study him in the scripture. It makes it easy, because you go, huh, that's who he is? Sign me up. I wanna wanna read more about that, tell me more. And when we remember who he is, we wanna pursue him, chase him down and say, Lord, help me. I've got access now, I'm close. I've got his presence in my life, wow. And then, you know what? We feel wave after wave of his love. He loves us. He loves us. He was never in a competition with us. All he wanted to do was love us. And he was willing to die and suffer the consequences in our place. That's insane. That's why Paul said he's praying that we know the depths and the breaths of the love of God. That's what these prayers are all about. Right? And we can live without fear. We don't have to sit here and go, well, where do I stand? What's my future going to look like? We don't have to. It's covered because if he can do that, 
He can do anything. He can do anything. And not only that, it makes it easy to embrace how he defines us. It makes it easy. Now, I'm going to give you a break real quick. The last time I saw most of you guys was not in the pulpit, but was around here taking pictures. You guys remember that? A few months back, um, uh, uh, Pastor Rick and, and Keena had asked me to come take some pictures. Can we just look at a couple of those pictures that we took? And what I want you to do, I want you, no, 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 let's go back to the first one. Let's go back to the first one. We're going to take these one by one. I want to I wanna ask you, what do you see when you look at this picture? Love. Okay, you see love. Well, that's, that's romantic. That's beautiful. Who do, who do you see? The Millers. The Millers, right? Where are they going? They're going to Nepal soon, right? And what do you see? A little bit of the relationship. You see, just look at that gaze of Paul. Isn't that beautiful? That's awesome, right? But you see Paul and Amy when you look at that, right? Okay, next picture. What do you see? What's that? Say it loud, come on. You see the church? You see God's house? Okay. Okay, next picture. Ooh, what do you see there? Right? I know Sandy doesn't like that picture because she's not smiling, but that's okay. Teddy's smiling enough for both of them, right? So who do you see here, right? Who do you see? You see, okay. No, but who do you see? Okay, you see Sandy McCready, right? You see Michelle right here, right? You see Priscilla over here, right? And then you see who? Teddy, right? Okay, next picture. Ooh, what do you see there? Look at this stud muffin up here. Who's that? <laughs> Who's that? He was just up here, wasn't he? Right? What's his name? Pastor Mike, right? And who do you see next to him? You see Janie Kanovich right there, right? Okay, next picture. What do you see here? What's this? What's this? First Baptist? Okay, see First Baptist, okay. Right, next picture. Ooh, this is fun. Who do you see here? Dennis and Shirley. That's right, you see Dennis and Shirley. Now, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm not trying to be pain. I'm just trying to illustrate one thing. And that thing is, when we look at, when we look we look and assess according to what we see. This is why it's so easy to forget Christ's unifying work, because we go with what we see, okay? Let's look at our text. Uh, the third thing he wants to remind us of, who Christ is. We are the presence of God. We are the presence of God. Believers in the gospel are the presence of God. So that you are no longer strangers to aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, can we look at those pictures again? I'm going to give you another opportunity to help us understand these pictures. Nothing we have. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, back, 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 back. One more. Okay. What do you see here? What do you see here? 
presence of God. Right there, we see a nook in this world of God's presence. Next picture. Who's here? Somebody called this the house of God. What is this? It's a building. It's a building. Maybe a lot of feelings attached to this, a lot of history attached to this. It's a building. It doesn't breathe. It doesn't have blood, right? It's a building. It's brick and mortar, right? But that's not the church. That's not the dwelling place of God. Next picture. Who's this? I already gave you the answer. It's the dwelling place of God. It's the dwelling place of God. Right here. All right, next. We got doesn't matter what expression Pastor Mike has or how serious or grumpy he can be sometimes. He's in the presence of God. Right? Next. Right here. And this is so huge. It's just a building. It's just a building. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible is the term ecclesia, the, the word we use for church, ever describing a, a building. It's only ever describing people. Right? And right here, who we have? What? Yeah, and you see, you see Dennis here with this young lady, Shirley, right? <laughs> the old man with the young lady, right? That's what I see, because I love Shirley. But what do we see here? No, it's the presence of God. This is ultimately, when we take the veil back, and we look at all of eternity, this is what we're going to be talking about. We're not going to be talking about, who is that again? Oh, that's all love. You're not going to think about names. You're going to think about the Lord's name. Now that is an overflow of what we have in the gospel. It's just a simple exercise to, to see this text for what it is. We no longer assess according to the flesh. And God's presence in our lives is what now defines us. We are the temple. We are his temple. And this has cosmic implications. And this is how this letter is, is, is orchestrated around. You think about that. Paul wants us to understand the difficulty of Christ's uniting work. And guess what? Ephesians is about how we live that out. Ephesians is about remembering this and how easy, when we remember, how easy it is to live like we are one. Right? Let me just read some passages in Ephesians for us, right? As, as Ephesians 4 starts, it kicks off this way. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. One man he's talking about here. We're one in him. And the gifts that we have demonstrate that. The diversity of the gifts are all to equip us to be one and bring about the unity of faith. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, right? Nothing reminds us of who we were than our sin, right? And what does is, what is Paul say? Now we got this one. Oh, guess what? We are not that anymore. So we can repent and go, that's not me anymore. Lord, forgive me. Thank you for your, your healing power. 
Now I'm one in Christ. I am the presence of God. That doesn't, now being a Gentile doesn't have to define me, right? He says, um, put off your old self, verse 22, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. This is by us remembering. Remembering. When do we remember? Yes, that happens, right? Um, at the end of chapter 4, be kind to one another. All of the one another's are built on this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another. Why? Because we're one. And he's removed the hostility, right? And, and, and then we get this beautiful, beautiful portrait of, of harmonious life in Ephesians 5. This is what shalom looks like in God's people. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? You're the dwelling place of God. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. <sighs> He's just calling us to remember who you are. Remember who you are. And when you remember who you are, that means it defines every relationship that you have. And we become ambassadors for those outside. And we become brothers and sisters and one in family to those who are on the inside. This is the relationship we have. And not only that, he wants us to be armed with this. Why? Chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Guess what? What's he saying? The people that you see here on this globe are not your enemies. They're not. There's no need to be hostile. The real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is spiritual. It's not flesh and blood. That means that we'll never be able to bring about the unifying work through flesh and blood. What did it take? It took the spiritual work of Jesus to become one of us, to submit himself to us, die in our place, and then recreate us anew through the resurrection. His resurrection is just a preview to our resurrection. And for all of eternity, guess what? We're going to be called the presence of God. So, when we remember who we are, it is easy. It is easy to pursue the unity of faith, isn't it? When we remember who we are, it's easy to repent and bear fruit. Put on the new man, right? When we remember who we are, it's easy to be for one another, not against one another. When we remember who we are, it's easy to live without fear of what will it look like if I'm separated from everybody, because you're not going to be, right? And then, and then, it's easy when we know who we are, we know that we're not each other's enemy. And this is exactly what he wants us to know, because it's easy to forget. Let's pray.